There are times this behavior seems almost pathological, uh, the, the pattern of falsehoods. He's always in the moment just sort of reacting um, and trying to get reactions. How, how loyal are you to the president? And that's how you're being judged. So if you have a more nuanced position, some will consider you, you know, an infidel or a traitor. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show as we finally enter September. Donald Trump's very difficult month behind him, but as we say, with Congress returning to town, out of the frying pan, into the fire. Trumpcast is the show about the man who can't wait for the leaves to turn on the trees. In the rearview mirror, hopefully, Charlottesville. Donnie Brooks with fellow Republicans, the Robert Mueller-Eric Schneiderman duo, the Diplo military dance with North Korea, and the most present menace of all, Hurricane Harvey and his aftermath. Donald Trump should be so lucky. All of these problems and many more are not going away. Together, they translate to chaos in Washington. And to one subspecies of this town, That's actually a good thing. K Street, Washington's 10,000 registered lobbyists, roughly 20 for every member of Congress, and thousands more who label themselves strategic advisors and bypass some of the reporting requirements that come with actually bending arms to pass bills. For all of them, whatever the issue, whoever is paying, no matter what country they're from, it's high cotton. Today on the show, a reporter who knows the back alleys of money in Washington better than anyone. It's Nick Confessori. He's out with a blockbuster piece in this weekend's New York Times magazine, How to Get Rich in Trump's Washington. He'll join me after the break. Nick Confessori joined the New York Times in 2004. Money and politics have been on his beat for a long time. In 2016, he was part of a team of reporters who won a Loeb Award for their investigative finding that just 158 families had contributed half of the early funding of the presidential campaign. He'll be up for more magazine awards with this weekend's entry in the Times Magazine under his byline, How to Get Rich in Trump's Washington. Nick, welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You have been covering this beat for a long time, Nick. How would you describe the state of Washington lobbying and, within quotes, strategic advising today? You know, I would say it's been disrupted, but it's also thriving. Um, There are a whole new cast of characters who were not on K Street before, who were not people of consequence in Washington before. I think what you find around Trump is the guys from the back of the classroom, people who are either kind of C-listers in Washington, um, and I say that without judgment, uh, or people who weren't even in Washington at all, who have now come to the fore, and because of their relationships with the president or the people around him, which are suddenly so valuable, they have become important players in the lobbying industry and in the quote-unquote strategic advisory uh, firms. And, you know, you were at this when I met you 2000, before 2004, Washington Monthly covering money and politics. How does this compare to the early days of money in Washington? Well, I think what's different is, uh, you know, in the very early days of lobbying, there weren't many lobbyists. 
It was a really, it was like a sideline. It was a couple of fixers and lawyers and people who might get you a meeting. Or it was people who were paid by companies to figure out what was happening on the Hill. This is before email, before websites. You know, you could be paid to hang around a hearing and take notes. You could be paid to get a copy of a bill. In the decades since, lobbying became a very sophisticated uh, $3 billion industry. It was all about uh, the timing of legislation, creating, building, and funding coalitions of interests uh, that could get behind a bill, um, writing the bill for the lawmakers, presenting the bill, helping draft it and fix it, and then helping sell it and pass it. So the lobbying firms became entrenched with polling firms and advertising firms. A lot of the big lobby shops were bought by big PR holding companies like Omnicom. So it was this big, sophisticated thing. People who were good lobbyists uh, were not just access players, but they were pretty good on the policy. They knew policy inside and out. What changed when Trump arrived is suddenly you had a president whose policy ideas were pretty unformed, whose policy process in his own White House was pretty chaotic. And all of a sudden, it became possible again to at least imagine that a single phone call could redirect policy at the national level in the White House. We're going to talk about some of those phone calls and tweets, Nick Confessori. Your magazine is drawn with three very rich characters. You could interpret rich in many different ways. Robert (laughs) Strick, Brian Ballard, and Corey Lewandowski. Let's start with the unlikely path that Robert Strick took to get into the Washington influence game. It seems like it started on election night at Morton's. That's correct. So so Strick is a guy who had kind of banged around Washington and beyond for, for a long time. Uh, no one had ever heard of him um, who wasn't pretty deep in the lobbying game. Uh, he was a young guy in the Hill. Uh, he worked at a couple of PR and lobbying firms. He was a political consultant out in Arizona, where he's from. Uh, He tried to start his own lobbying firm and almost went under in the Obama years. He's a Republican, uh, so business was a little drier back then. And, uh, you know, eventually he left and kind of reinvented himself as a procurement guy, a person who helps connect clients, private sector clients who want to sell things to the government and connect them to the government. And he made a good living that way. But then what happened was Trump was elected, And this is literally how he relaunched his business as a lobbyist. He's sitting uh, on the patio of a hotel bar in Washington, and a woman's dog comes up and sniffs his crotch, and they get to talking. And it turns out she works for the uh, for the embassy of New Zealand, and the government of New Zealand at the time is is in a tizzy because they can't figure out how to actually get a phone call into the president of the United States, which is a top ally. And New Zealand is one of five countries that we share intelligence with in a very deep way. So typically, it's a close relationship. And Strick says, you know what? I actually know somebody. I can get you a phone number. Uh, and it turned out that Strick had a couple of buddies in the Trump campaign, people who, who like him, were not A-listers back in the day, but were old friends of his. And so what happened was all of a sudden, these relationships that were not central to the power structure of Washington, all of a sudden were essential to the power structure of Washington. And people like Strick were well-positioned to finally launch businesses as major lobbyists. You draw this picture of a Labrador retriever sniffing Strick's crotch, but it's probably a golden retriever based on how much it returned. Uh, <laughs> why? Chocolate lab, actually, is what I was told. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it turns out that the tiny little country of New Zealand holds the, one of the splashiest inauguration parties for 
the Trump inauguration? Why and how? Well, that's right. So, you know, it might seem uh, to your listeners that, well, who cares about a party? Who cares about an event? Who cares about a reception? Well, the truth is, in the protocol of, of nations and diplomacy, these events are actually pretty important for signaling, uh, for meeting, for, for getting to know people. So what Strick did, first working for free, he said, he said, you know what, I have a solution to your problems. I'm going to throw you a big event for the inauguration. So New Zealand, which is a pretty left-leaning country and, and a kind of egalitarian one, uh, was going to throw a huge party for, the, for, for, for President Trump. And he would fill the guest list with people from Trump world, not necessarily the bold-faced names that you know about, but the slightly kind of lower-ranking people who were the deputy assistant secretaries and the future assistant or deputy chiefs of staff, uh, the folks who, who arrange meetings, who take phone calls, who man the gates. And he filled the room with those people. And it turned out that the party at, at, at the embassy that night was kind of a hot party of Inauguration Week. Everybody was there. It was like a Trump alumni reunion. Uh, and all of a sudden, the ambassador in New Zealand had a chance to make his case and present his country as a potential ally of this new administration. So that in the future, when he wanted to negotiate, let's say, the issue of travel visas or business visas uh, for New Zealanders or negotiate the issue of a trade agreement following the failure of TPP, he had some friendly faces he could liaise with. And all under the celebrity patronage of John Voigt, a real, a real star for this party. Well, listen, John Voight is, is, is the closest thing the Republican Party you know, gets to a Hollywood celebrity after Clint Eastwood. So there just aren't that many Republican celebrities, and, and John Voight was another personal friend of Strix. And again, these relationships that he'd had for years all of a sudden uh, had a different valence, had a different power in Washington. We'll get back to Strick in a minute, but let's enter the second major character of your piece, Confessori, Corey Lewandowski. It's a name we've... we've come to know over the past two years. Does Chuck Todd rue the day that he invited Corey back on Meet the Press, in which, after a few questions and answers, you really understood that Corey was there shilling for one of his clients? It's my recommendation to the President of the United States to fire Richard Cordray, and if he wants to go run for governor of Ohio, go do it. But my concern is that you've got an unelected bureaucrat sitting in an office right now, and I hope that the new chief of staff looks at him moving forward and saying it's time to act decisively. I I have to ask this, considering that you brought this up. Do you have have any business interest here? Do you have a client that wants to see this happen? No, no, I I have no clients whatsoever, but what I do know is two weeks Uh, ago... You know, I can't speak for Chuck. I do note that uh, Chuck asked the right question. He did. He he noticed instantly uh, that uh, Corey was randomly talking about firing the head of of the Financial Regulation Board in Washington. It was... was totally had a character with the rest of the stuff he was saying. So Chuck was, was, was sharp enough and fast enough to push him, whether that was a client. I believe Corey lied about that on the air because I wrote a story a few days later showing that, in fact, Corey was working for a payday lender in Ohio that wants to get rid of Cordray and get rid of Cordray's rules. This, this is a Richard Cordray, yeah. the, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Uh, so, you know, Corey Lewandowski, much like Strick, who actually is an acquaintance of his, although I think the relationship is not a close one anymore. Uh, but Corey was another one of these B-list guys. Uh, Corey had worked for Bob Ney, who later went to prison in the Abramoff scandals. He worked on the Hill for a bit. He ended up in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, he was in the uh, 
uh, you know, he trained uh, for law enforcement briefly. He worked for a really tiny uh, Massachusetts communications firm where he did some lobbying uh, on their behalf. And eventually he ended up actually working uh, for the Koch brothers organization, Americans for Prosperity. So he was a player there, but again, not a household name. I remember talking to Corey back in maybe 2011, 2012, when he was working with the Koch organization. Um, He was a nice guy, but like he was not a person who was a major player. He ran the New Hampshire chapter of Americans for Prosperity. Well, as you all know, he ends up uh, being hired as Trump's campaign manager because no one else wants to be Trump's campaign manager. Um, And even though he's fired partway through the race, um, in Trump world, people people are never really fired. And he continued to be very close to Trump, who he revered and really loved. And that became the foundation for for Corey's new business. And this is Avenue Strategies. And, you know, some of the things that would come up early in the administration, Trump's tweeting at Lockheed, his tweeting at Boeing, his tweeting at Carrier. Where was the service that Corey would introduce into this relationship? Well, Corey and his partner at the time, Barry Bennett, uh, were there to explain how Trump thinks and what you need to deal with Trump. So, again, you asked, how did things change when Trump became president? Well, past presidents were not in the habit of tweeting abuse at major American corporations. Um, And in fact, when Trump was tweeting and complaining about Lockheed Martin and the price of the F-35 fighter jet, their stock dropped, and it cost them billions in market valuation. So it was actually a real problem. Uh, And what Corey and Barry went in and said was, the guy's transactional. You have to go in there and give him something. And it turned out that the next time when the, when the Lockheed Martin CEO, Marilyn Houston, went in to, to, uh, to visit with Trump, she came with promises. She says, I'm going to build a factory. I'm going to create some new jobs. I'm going to give you the credits all because of you. And the Twitter abuse stopped. And all of a sudden, Trump was praising what was praising Lockheed Martin. So that, that, that's a whole business that, that, that uh, simply did not exist before Trump. And let's now just spend a little time on this third character, Brian Ballard from Florida, reading about him in your um, incredible piece, making uh, Getting Rich in Trump's Washington, Nick Confessori. You got the feeling like he is the example of slow and steady wins the race. I think that's probably right. You know, I thought of Brian, who is probably the top lobbyist in Florida uh, and a well-known guy in Republican fundraising circles. He was a great angle of the story to explain parts of the establishment uh, uh, you know, around the country, so the Republican establishment, were acclimating themselves to Trump and finding their way in Trump's world. So you know, Trump said he would drain the swamp. You know, Trump said he would, he would beat the heck out of the established interests. Well, you know, Brian Ballard is, is among the top uh, fundraisers for Republican candidates and presidents in the country. He's a guy everyone likes and everyone knows. He's got a blue-chip roster of corporate clients in Florida, Google, Amazon, and, of course, the Trump Organization itself, for whom he was a lobbyist. And he comes to town, and he's not there to create a whole new way of doing lobbying. He's not there to pursue the nationalist agenda or claim he's pursuing the nationalist agenda the way that Corey Lewandowski said his clients would actually help the president. He was there to join the swamp. He was there to, 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 to kind of get his patch of earth in Washington. And do some business. Uh, and he did fine because he didn't make enemies. You know, Corey Lewandowski is pretty brash uh, and he made some enemies. He was already well established. 
And basically, in 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 his first year in Washington, he is poised to essentially double the revenue of his lobbying company overall. So some people are definitely getting rich in Trump's Washington. Let's return now a couple months into the administration to, the, to your story on Robert Strick. You know, how, how's he doing as the as the administration is moving forward? He's staffing up. He's getting clients like Czech Republic and Korea on, on the list. But he also makes a big score in the Middle East, doesn't he? That's right. You know, so he picked up um, a ministry uh, in, in, in the government of Saudi Arabia. So what you got to understand is, is companies have lobbyists, but countries have lobbyists, too. Um, and usually it's not a country like Great Britain. It's usually the Gulf states or small countries that are not rich uh, and feel that they need some extra help getting their voices across in Washington. So Strick really made this a core part of his business. And, you know, he staffed up. He bought on some Trump people. Uh, some also alumni some of the Trump CIA campaign. types. And... That's right. And he also bought on experts because, you know, I think of Strick as a guy uh, who knew the business but never had an opportunity to make it big in the business. And Trump gave him that opportunity. So he wanted to build a real lobbying advisory firm. He hired a former CIA station chief. He got a bunch of guys on contract who had intelligence contracts who had served in the intelligence community. You know, he wanted to do real advice, real uh, substantive work for his clients. He wasn't just about getting phone calls, even though the kind of starting point for this new business was, in fact, a phone call. Uh, you know, but he, he really aspired to do more than that. And through the spring, he was doing pretty well. Uh, Saudi Arabia probably has more lobbyists on its payroll than any government um, in the world in Washington. Uh, and they're a huge player. He got a $5.4 million contract from the Ministry of the Interior. Amazing. So let's check in at this summer, Nick, back to Corey Lewandowski. The payday lender that he's got from Ohio is on his is on his list, but Lockheed decides not to do work with him. He's Some work that he's doing with Puerto Rico is kind of coming apart, isn't it? Well, what's interesting here is, is Corey in particular had staked his business on the idea that the rules of influence were going to change permanently, that the center of the action would be this Trump White House, or if you didn't know who the factions were and couldn't tell who was up and who was down, you were dead meat. So you needed a guy like Corey. You needed a guy like Corey who knew his way around, who knew who the players were, who knew how Trump thought. And it turned out that, that his influence was not what he thought it was, and that the process in the White House and the factionalism were so bad that it actually subverted like any attempt to get anything done for any client. Um, so in the category of big promises, you know, he went to work uh, for the uh, government of Puerto Rico, or I should say the, uh, you know, the governor of, of Puerto Rico. The current ruling party in Puerto Rico is the equivalent of the Democrats, right? Um, so they were kind of out uh, uh, and kind of over their skis with Trump. And, and Corey had said he, he could get Trump to come out for Puerto Rican statehood, which is something that Republicans traditionally opposed. He said he could get Trump to provide some more federal funding to ease their financial crisis. The problem here was that he was up against the swamp, the true swamp, the old swamp. You know, most of Puerto Rico's debt is owned by a bunch of hedge funds that are very sophisticated, well-wired. And Trump had actually appointed a top former lobbyist for these hedge funds to his National Economic Council. Uh, and from what I hear, he has managed to push back any effort to get more money to Puerto Rico. And then finally, Trump, in his, in his typical fashion, kind of writes off Puerto Rico over Twitter. 
uh, and says, uh, uh, you know, actually, you know, Puerto Rico is trying to take your tax dollars and get a bailout. So the very thing that he was selling, which is I can tell the president things, I can change the way he thinks, um, I can help you understand how he thinks, um, I can manage his Twitter habits, uh, turned out to be wrong and actually defeated him in the end. So it's not to say that Corey isn't making a lot of money in Washington. I, I think he probably has a good client base. But the idea that the Trump administration, the Trump West Wing, was going to be the center of gravity in Washington is turning out to be less and less true. Right. As Trump continues to seem sort of less and less the the pivot on where things are actually going to move in Washington. You know, we've read the articles over and over about Corey Lewandowski wanting to, quote, go in, unquote. This is in your piece. Barry Bennett talks about that. Is this a White House that General John Kelly is going to put out a welcome mat for Corey anytime soon, or is it hermetically sealed against him? You know, I don't think he's going to get it anytime soon. It's why he, uh, in the latest round, he went over to the super PAC. I think the kind of tragedy of Corey Lewandowski on K Street is that he never actually wanted to be on K Street. What, what, what he always wanted was to work alongside the old man, President Trump. What I learned from sitting with him and, and talking to his friends and writing the story was that although he was making a big play on K Street, a very splashy play, it was always a little hollow. He didn't want to be there. He was always looking to get to uh, to go back in. And as you saw, there were always these stories saying he was on his way back in or he was telling people he was on his way in. And that job never materialized. And who knows who was leaking those stories? It could have been Corey himself. And he's a really sophisticated player in some ways. And uh, But he also had some enemies, and, and namely Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, uh, you know, are not huge fans of his. And it helped engineer his exit from the campaign back in 2016. So it seems like while he's close to the president, he travels with him, uh, which is kind of strange for a pseudo-lobbyist. He went to Ohio with him for for an event. Uh, He's close to him. He talks to him on the phone. He does not have a White House job. And so he exists in this kind of gray zone where he's representing private clients who aren't disclosed because he won't register to be a lobbyist and claims he's not lobbying. But he's also advising the president, talking to him about uh, his policies and his strategies, hanging out with the West Wing staff. There are precedents for it, but it is certainly pretty strange to watch. I was struck by that moment, maybe in June, June or July on the trip to Ohio, that Corey went on Air Force One with President Trump. I emailed Mark Noller. I said, had Corey ever been on Air Force One? Had he taken any, had he taken any trips? And Noller wrote back to me, no, this is the first one. And sure enough, that very evening, you saw the Twitter avatar change to the old familiar Lewandowski finger point toward the lens with his aviator glasses on. And he's standing in the rear belly staircase of Air Force One where staffers often go up. But if you ever work at the White House, it's not the most glamorous shop shot in the repertoire. No, it's not. The really glamorous shot is is coming down the main stairs. Uh, uh, but look, it's uh, it's still a, it's still an advertisement, right? If you're a potential client of Corey's, you see that it hangs around Air Force One. As direct and obvious as it sounds, it actually does work. There are a lot of clients, particularly clients abroad, from countries where you know you got to suck up to the regime to get something done. Where people assume that that's how business works here, that, that you have to have fixers for everything. So I suspect uh, that photo will do them a lot of good, even though to an insider like you who's been on Air Force One, uh, there's something a little funny about it. Hence your possible sighting of him in Taiwan at the end of the piece. It is a big world out there. The shingle is out. Lewandowski Strategic Advisors, if that helps at all. Nick Confessori, author 
of this week's major piece in the New York Times magazine, How to Get Rich in Trump's Washington. His presidency has changed the rules of influence in the nation's capital and spawned a new breed of lobbyists on K Street. Nick, thanks for joining us on Trumpcast. My pleasure, Josh. And that's the show for today. But before we take off, you have to be following us on Twitter by now, right? If not, why not? We're on there at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. It's the best way to keep up with the latest goings-on around the show, including, again, our upcoming live show in Austin, Texas for the Texas Tribune Festival. You'll get more info on that at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.